like I said, your experience teaches you a lot more than what anybody else writes or says. If you don't have the right institution and the right structure, there's just no way that you can do things fairly. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sam Charrington. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, none other than Timnit Gebru, founder and executive director of DARE, the Distributed Artificial Intelligence Research Institute, and of course, a great friend of the show. Before we dive into today's conversation, be sure to take a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Timnit, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. It has been a bit. I think this is actually your fourth time-ish because you did a meetup that you probably don't remember. Oh, I do remember. I remember. Back in January 17 about your Google Street View work. And then your first time on the show is in January of 18, episode number 88. We're probably at 588 or something like that now. And of course, you helped us cover trends in fairness and AI ethics, January of 20, kind of looking back on 19. Wow, it's been a long two and a half years. Man, I can't <laughs> even believe it. <laughs> Why don't we get started by uh, having you share a little bit about what's been going on for you? Welcome back. Yeah, I can't even. It's really interesting being back because I remember our first Black Night workshop. You all had, you were at like a hotel room. You had a whole setup. It was just like, it just feels like such a long time ago. Yeah, that was Long Beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And it's very interesting. It's kind of like chronicling journey, you know, every time I come back here. Uh Well, I have to say that right now I'm focused on D.A.R.E., as you mentioned, and I'm trying to take the time to calm down a little bit (laughs) and, Mm. and also think about just take a step back. So one of the things I wanted to do was think about you know, there are all of these issues that we're talking about, right? Fairness, ethics, labor issues, etc. And, but what does the right model for doing things look like, right? What does the right institute look like? What do the right incentive structures look like? How should we approach the way we do research and uh, what we build, what we don't build? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just kind of trying to take the time to figure those out at this right now with there. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to ask you to give a 30,000 foot, 30 second <laughs> overview of your recent experiences to at Google? Help folks get some at Google to help folks get some context uh, if they've not heard any of the previous podcasts? <laughs> well, I got fired from Google or as uh, some of my former teammates have called it, actually, Sami Banjo, he coined the term being resignated. resignated. <laughs> he was like... In French, he said in French, you know, you have this word where like someone resigns you. (laughs) You And and so like they call it being resignated. So I was resignated from Google and it was a whole, to be honest with you, I still have not processed it because Mm -hmm. it was in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of, you know, a war that just started in Ethiopia, the most horrible war I have ever seen that is not really being talked about that also gets us 
has gotten me to see all of the issues on social media and, and in a way that I've never seen before. People talk about these issues and it's, it's like you never learn about it as much as when you experience it. Mm-hmm. And so in the middle of that whole thing, and I wrote this paper on the dangers of large language models. And the way this actually happened, believe it or not, was not because I wanted to write a paper, but I saw that people at Google were basically saying, you know, why are we not the leaders in like large language models? You know, this is, we should be the ones doing these giant models. And you see this race, just people are so fixated on having larger and larger models. And I was very worried about that because it seemed to be this rush to a bigger thing without clarity on like why that bigger thing and also what are the issues. And so I asked Emily Bender, And I said, hey, do you have papers on this that you've written before (laughs) that I can cite? Because right now I'm citing your tweets. (laughs) And if I could cite a paper that you've written that I can send to people, because people are also internally at Google asking me, what are things we should worry about? Mm -hmm. And so she said, hey, why don't we write something together? And I'm like, well, I don't know what I'd contribute. And so then I, and we each pulled in other people. I pulled in Meg and other people from the play team. And we wrote this paper and honestly, I never thought it would be controversial. It wasn't, it, I just thought it was just going to be this paper and that's it, right? I didn't think they would love, I didn't think the Google people were going to be like super happy about it, Yeah. but I didn't think they were going to just do what they did, obviously. And so long story short, I found myself basically disconnected from my corporate account in the middle of my supposed vacation. And I found out from my direct report that I had apparently sent in my resignation. And that set off a whole very, very stressful few months because Mm -hmm. then there was all this harassment online. There was all of this. You have to make sure you're safe. There are literally like people from the dark web who made it a point, like a point to, to harass me, come to all the talks I'm giving and, you know, just kind of harass anybody who was coming to my defense. A lot of other people found themselves writing documents, having to talk to lawyers and things like that. People who don't even know me, by the way, just because people were coming to my defense on Twitter or something like that, just because of that, I found myself being thrust into the public space. And so then that also, just that fact itself brings in more attention from more people. And then I was like really worried about my team and what was going to happen to them. But then, you know, my co-lead Meg Mitchell was also fired. So it was a whole few months. It was a whole thing. thing. And that's what I mean by I didn't have a chance to really process what has Mm -hmm. happened. But in the midst of that, of course, I was thinking, what is the thing I could do next? Because I really couldn't get myself to think about being at another large tech company and do that fight again. I also know that I there would be some companies that would be unwilling to hire somebody like me after all of that. There's, you know, some members of my former team, their office were resigned from some places like after oh, this wow. publicity. And it, it's real, you know, it really mm-hmm. is real that people by speaking up just destroy their entire careers and any options. But I had been thinking about creating a Distributed Independent Research Institute. I've been even thinking about like creating a university. Why can't we have a distributed kind, a different kind of universe? You know, I've been thinking about these things, but 
if I hadn't been fired, probably what I would have done is slowly start something, start something from on the side and grow it very, very slowly, not like the way we just started this. So mm-hmm. anyhow, and after that, I decided to start DARE, the Distributed AI Research Institute. That's awesome. And so what's the, how do you think about the charter for DARE? What's kind of in the zone, in the scope versus out of scope? DARE is an AI research institute like any other research institute that you you can think of. The thing that we are is we're an interdisciplinary research institute. Alex Hanna recently joined as our director of research. Mm -hmm. He's a sociologist. And the distributed aspect was very important for me because I saw it even at Google in the ethical AI team. Meg was very good at retaining a distributed team. And one of the last people we hired was Mahdi, who's a Moroccan. And he was raising the alarm on social media like no other person. And he was doing all this research. His friends were in jail. They're journalists. And I could see that nobody, even the people in ethics or whatever, could not really grasp this, the, the gravity of the situation. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't have that person with that experience, there is no way you would find out about that issue and look into it, right? Yeah. And that showed me the importance of of having people like that and not forcing them to move to Silicon Valley or whatever. I don't want to, what I'm thinking about is how not to consolidate power, right? Not how to mm-hmm. further kind of contribute to the brain drain of different other locations, so that's why the first word that came to my mind was distributed. And I mm-hmm. called, you know, I told Eric Sears, who's a program officer, a, a director at MacArthur, the MacArthur Foundation. I was like, hey, look, the first word that came to my mind is distributed. I want to call it DARE. Like, does it sound weird? You know, um, <laughs> it's like, no, it's, it's cool. So that's DARE. And so when you say what's in scope versus out of scope, that's honestly something that we're still trying to figure out because I'd like it to be kind of a combination of, of course, we have a few top-down directions, but I, I really feel strongly that it's very important to have a bottoms-up approach to research because you can't be the all-knowing person who knows like what the next important thing is, right? So it's important to let other people drive that too. But the thing we're focused on right now is what is our res- research philosophy And what do we care about, right? And so first of all, we care very much about not exploiting people in the research process. One of the things that is super clear in research in general, and especially when you look at this field, where there's a lot of knowledge that's extracted from people, a lot of data in different forms that's extracted from people without compensation, without acknowledgement, et cetera, right? Like you have that also in the fairness space. For instance, you have... A group of researchers, you know, they get tenure and they're ascending based on work on fairness or something. And who are the subjects that they talk about? Oh, they'll talk about formerly incarcerated people or people in prison currently. They'll talk about like different groups of people who are harmed by this technology who are not getting the money, you know, for the research or the fame or many times their lives are not changing because of this work, but they're subjects of it, right? Right. And so we're trying to figure out how do, how do we not do that? <laughs> you know, how do we do the opposite of that? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to have research that incorporates these people and actually is led by many times people like that? And how do you funnel resources? And so one of our research fellows um, who just joined Mila is actually one of the things she's doing is helping us figure that out, right? What is our research philosophy and how do we operationalize it? So in terms of, you know, what's in scope and out of scope, so 
There's a self-selection going on there where the people who do want to do research at DARE are people who care about these kinds of things, are somehow embedded in community building, not just research that has nothing to do with that. And like, for instance, if you want to work on so I, I'm co- I'm advising on a workshop, which I coordinated before on practical machine learning for developing countries or practical lo- machine learning in low resource scenarios. So if you want to kind of think about what about like small data and small compute, right? Like right. that, I think you might want to join, you know, we might want to think about working at there. But if you're interested in like even larger models and even larger something, then I don't understand what we would provide in that sense. So that's yeah. kind of how I'm thinking about it right now. What I'm hearing in part is that the areas that you've traditionally been working in and a researcher, ethics, fairness, and that you're probably best known for, that is not necessarily a research focus for DARE, but more like a undercurrent or a foundation. And DARE is going to be broader and encompass, like you said, all the things that another research institute might, like Amila, might be interested in, depending on you know who it is that comes and starts up research programs there. Exactly. So, like some people describe Dare as like an AI ethics research institute, right? And I'm like, no. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's not what we're what we're hoping to do. And by virtue of who we are. We will, so there's two ends of the spectrum that we were looking at, right? And I think our advisory committee members, when you look at Safiya Noble and Shira uh, Mena, they encompass those two ends of the spectrum. So the first end is, how do you do this research in a way that we think is beneficial to, to the groups of people that we care about? And actually, when you said what's in scope and out of scope, our focus is we're starting with thinking about people in Africa and the African diaspora, right? Like, so there's no kind of question, like, I don't have, I don't know if I have to explain why, but like Black people in general around the world who are very much harmed by this technology and not necessarily benefiting from it. So when you look at Shira, he's um, in the area, he's in Kenya, and a lot of his work is on how to work on climate change and data science, right? He analyzes bird migration patterns that tells you something about the climate and how it's changing. He was at the first Black Nia workshop. He probably covered his work, food security and conservation. He works on stuff like he co-founded Data Science Africa, right? So it's kind of like how to work on data, quote unquote data science or related fields in a way that is beneficial to the groups of people that he cares about. On the other end, you have Sophia who's in the US and she is more on the other end of the spectrum, how to raise the alarm when we know there are issues that with technology that's already been built, right? So, and she's more uh, from the social sciences side, right? So like, for me, that encompasses sort of what I want to build with DARE, right? Um, Interdisciplinary, have different groups of people to be able to work on research that we think is beneficial to our communities in a way that's not exploiting the people who are actually who might not have PhDs or whatever, but have a lot of knowledge about these systems and how they're impacting them. So I like what you said. Yeah, it is an undercurrent, right? Of like, how do we do this work? Is that's how we're um, building this foundation. I mean, this institute. One of the things that we chatted about before we started recording was that a lot of your focus right now is on institution building for obvious reasons. You're building an institution. Like, I'm curious what that, means for you? And also, well, afterwards, I want to relate that back to 
your experience at Google and and the the idea around you know how do ethics organizations inside large companies like how do we build those so that they have teeth so to speak so that they can be effective. Yeah, that's a very good question. And so I've been going on this fairness rabbit hole, as you know, and I've been like, I've worked on things related to math and or documentation or auditing, mm-hmm. community building, like Black AI, power building, <laughs> all the different kind of ways in which I think you can attack the problem. And I have kind of just kind of come to the conclusion, like many, and of course, this is not something new that I'm saying. It's just like I said, your experience teaches you a lot more than what anybody else writes or says, Mm -hmm. is that if you don't have the right institution and the right structure, there's just no way that you can do things, quote unquote, fairly, right? So that's why I'm I'm kind of working on institution building, right? I've I've had experiences in academia, I've had experiences in industry. And when I after I got fired from Google, I was thinking, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, you obviously won't have academic freedom in industry. If you want that, you should go to academia. And I was mm-hmm. like, that's not true, right? To me, it's a pyramid scheme up here at the top of the spear. You know, somebody <laughs> just tweeted the other day that graduate students make $36,000 a year, perhaps, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, they're in this weird position. Are they students? Are they workers? Like, do they get vacation or not? But they're in this situation for years, right? Very similar to college athletes. 100%, which also should get paid. Um, exactly. So that's where we are, right? And so, yes, and it makes absolutely no sense. It's I think it's very, very exploitative. And so imagine you're doing that work as a graduate student and your advisor controls your life and then you're going to tell them whatever research they're doing is not fair. You should have a different sort of direction. You you're you should stop that. How are you going to do that? You, you will lose your money. You will lose your career, like your future prospects, because they won't write you a recommendation. If people are on visas, you will lose your visa. So how are we telling people to do the right thing when we know we're not setting them up, right, with the incentive structure to do the right thing? And it's the same thing at work too, right? Like, again, what did I, I spoke up, I got fired. So why would anybody do something differently then, right? Like, so that's mm-hmm. why I, I really believe we have to think about incentive structures. And it's not just about, for instance, labor practices that we're talking about, right? It's about what kind of work is valued and what kind of work is not valued. I think you have Marielle Gray on your show to talk about her work, Ghost Work. So her and Sudarsa Sri have this book called Ghost Work, How Silicon Valley is Creating a Global Underclass. And they're talking about data labor, right? So all of this automation that we talk about is sort of pseudo, it's not, you know, real automation is that there's a lot of people behind it, labeling data, you know, doing all sorts of things, but they're being exploited, they're not being paid, right? Mm -hmm. And so in graduate school, if you're telling your PhD student that they should spend all of this time working on data related work, data labor, that's the very, the most important thing, you should think about how you're gathering and annotating data, take the time to do this right, but then they can't publish their work or they it's not valued or they can't get a job after they graduate. Again, that's an incentive structure and institution building issue, right? So now uh, there's some people working on uh, journals, for instance, to be able to, for people to be able to publish on data. And there was this new Europe's data sets and benchmarks track where we actually um, published a paper too for DARE. So that's what I mean. Like, this is exactly why I'm thinking about the incentive structures, right? Because there's no way you could 
do quote unquote the right thing if you're in the wrong incentive structure. Yeah, I did an interview with Safe Savage, who researches that area as well. That was a future of work for the invisible workers in AI. Exactly. Uh, back in episode 447. You know, if you kind of chart your path as experimenting with different institutional structures to try to see what works, is your decision to start there? Can we infer from that that support organizations aren't enough, internal organizations aren't enough, there needs to be just an independent alternative to kind of traditional research structures? Exactly. What I'm thinking is, so let's say if I went to academia, and I just told you, I'm trying to spend the time to think about the meta questions, how do we build something, etc. How mm-hmm. am I going to survive? Like I have to publish tomorrow, my students have to, you know, I'm oh, no tenure, sorry, what are you working on? Like, it's not even an option, right? Yeah. So my hope is that, yes, um, we start these smaller independent institutes where we can actually say stuff. Um, Alex was telling me about a talk that she gave the other day and that might not have made a number of people happy, but she's like, well, that's fine because I'm not looking to get tenure. And I'm like, yeah, that's the kind of stuff you can do when you're not looking to get tenure. So I think it gives us the opportunity to actually advocate for things that we think are important and maybe slowly those other larger institutions might change or have pressure to do things differently if they know that there are different options like our institute and if other people create other institutes. And honestly, even how I started Black AI, before Black AI, I had been involved in a lot of other organizations like for diversity or for this or for that. And I was like, there's no way I can convince you all to <laughs> do the things that I think we need to do for Black people. I just, I fought, I tried, I this and that. And I was like, let's start something new and do it the way we think it should be done. And this is kind of similar to that, right? I tried this, I tried that, I tried inside the organizations, I tried appealing to higher ups, I you know, whatever, but it's not working. And so what I want is to have an alternative. And even when you look at Black and AI, right? There's now Latinx and AI, queer and AI, indigenous and AI, mm-hmm. disabilities and AI. You also have a lot of Black and X, Black and robotics, black and neuro, black and physics, black, I don't even know. Like there's so many of them, right? Mm -hmm. And we can then, you know, build, there is like a network. Uh, Now you have, you build power and you can advocate for things collectively. And so hopefully that's what I'm hoping with DARE, right? It's kind of an alternative to what we have right now. And hopefully other people can kind of replicate it in a way that not, exactly replicate it, but in a way that works for their context. So with DARE, I can do things like think about funding, right? Where is our funding coming from? Mm-hmm. Honestly, sometimes it feels like pick your poison, like there's no really clean <laughs> money. <laughs> like, you know, I'm learning all these things, but I'm thinking about, right, like, again, like I said, the meta questions, right? If we're thinking mm-hmm. about AI and where th- the money comes from, you think about technology in general, when the government really invests in technology, it's during warfare or when they're interested in something to do with warfare. Like, so the transistors in Silicon Valley in World War II, you think about machine translation, why people were interested in that research has to do with Russia, Cold War. You think about DARPA and self-driving cars. It wasn't because they were like, oh, we need to make cars more accessible. We need to make sure that blind people can uh, very freely move around. So let's build. That's not what they said. They said- A lot of that has origins in DARPA. 
we care about autonomous warfare, right? And so how do we expect to come to a different conclusion when from the very beginning, our funding, our incentive structures, every the, the paradigm that we're using has something to do with warfare. And it's the same with industry too. Like if all you're thinking about is how to make money for this large, huge, humongous company that affects the entire world, controls the entire world, how do we have the space to think about a different paradigm, right? So like we're hoping to, to think about a different paradigm I'm sure like, you know, not that these paradigms don't exist. Other people are doing it too. But like take the time for ourselves to think about what paradigm should we follow starting from the funding to how we do research to who we are hoping to serve. We both have a lot of kind of colleagues in industry that are working within larger organizations, trying to help them use AI responsibly. You know, what does it say about that work? Is it futile? Is it for not? Is it a pessimistic view? Or is it, do you have examples of that process working correctly that you refer to? And, you know, you're just offering an alternative? Or do you think that that is, just doesn't work fundamentally? Yeah, there is this paper called, what is it? The Gray Hoodie Project from the University. Great Hoodie Project? Yeah, from people at the University of Toronto. And, um, And they talk about, they say how big tech's tactics are close to big tobacco. So they talk about how um, they give examples of how like the tobacco industries would give lots of money to certain academics who talk, who write about how, well, you know, it's not, it's unclear if smoking causes cancer or something Mm -hmm. like that. Or they would then internally retaliate against people who actually have those kinds of funding, I mean, of conclusions, right? Mm-hmm. Or fossil fuel industry whose scientists knew about climate change way back, but they were suppressing it. And so why wouldn't big tech be like that? I mean, what is their incentive not to be like that? So I, I have seen it myself, how they capture, people talking about industry capture, how they use research in order to like fight back against regulation. So I do believe, honestly, that the number one reason that these large tech companies want to have these quote-unquote ethics teams is to, in order to like fight back against regulation. So after I got Mm. fired, members of Congress and representatives sent a letter to Google. And there was a number of letters they sent. First of all, they sent letters about the number of Black people they have in these AI divisions. Do they have special like... Uh, training uh, in AI, except, uh, racial equity or any, the, the training or impact or anything. And they write back and they say, oh, we have these ERGs or employee resource groups and we have lots of Black people. We have this event, that event. And similarly, they uh, wrote a, a letter to them about large language models and their impacts, etc. And they're like, we have had hundreds of uh, papers uh, in ethics and fairness. You know what I mean? But I know for a fact right. they are actually suppressing more papers about the dangers of large language models. You would think that they've learned from <laughs> their lessons. So when they're doing this, they they are freely allowed to suppress and persecute people with certain kinds of works, but not others. You have to ask why. And that's be- that becomes more of a propaganda than research, right? So I do think that this is their goal, but so the people inside can know that and try to fight that, right? And I think the way they can fight that is through collective organizing like people before them have done, right? Um, Polaroid or workers organized against Polaroid's um, partnership with apartheid South Africa, right? And that was that had a, a big impact. So it's not that I don't think that people on the inside 
cannot change things, but it's that they have to be vigilant to understand why they want them there and how their work is being used, right? If you're Meg Mitchell used to call it fig lift, right? She's like fig, oh, fig leaf. She's like, I don't want to do a fig leaf work because like they already do everything else. You do the fig leaf work, right? Like you're like just stamping what they say. Oh, we're going to write your ethical consideration section or we're, get, we're just not changing the course, the direction that you're doing, but we'll sort of do a fig leaf thing. That can do much more harm than good. Are there examples in the industry that you look to as your creating dare? I mean, there's examples of what I don't want it to be like and what that was a huge motivation for. Like the open AI type stuff is not what I want. Like when open AI was announced, I and I've been so clear about this. I've never hid kind of I remember when open AI was announced, I was at Neurips and I think it was in 2015. Mm-hmm. And that was before the name change. And I had just gotten harassed at a Google party. I was harassed. I was having a horrible time. I'm just like, I don't ever want to come back to this conference. And it was after the whole Google Gorillas incident. And they announced this company that's supposed to save humanity from AI, like the whole world. It's all about Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and all these people. They had 10 deep learning people, 100%, no interdisciplinary, whatever. Eight of them white men one white woman, one Asian woman. And I know for, like, I knew for a fact this was not going to save humanity. (laughs) And fast forward, what are we talking about? We're talking about GPT-3. We're talking about the dangers of large language models. We're talking about how we're worried about things. We're talking about how there's unsafe products out there, et cetera, right? So of course, like, you start at the inception. This is exactly what I'm thinking about, institution building. Right. So you start at the inception. Who was at the table? Where did the funding come from? And so unless you think about that, you can't not arrive at a kind of the state that we're in today. There are a lot of those kinds of models. I am finding out about institutes left and right right now. One working on AGI, one working on some other thing that has like $50 million endowment or whatever. (laughs) I get irritated. I'm like, where's that $50 million coming from? I want endowment. So I don't have to think. Uh, But then I would have to compromise on, of course, probably where we get the money or something like that. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, I have models of what I don't want, but I do have models of the kinds of grassroots organizing that I've seen that I'm really excited about, right? So for instance, I gave you an example of Masakani, which is a network, and it was really beautiful to see, right? Because it grew up of the, uh, grew out of the deep learning in Daba, which is a convene, right? And so then they created a uh, people there who met there created Masakani Network, and it's really cool. It's a whole bunch of people focused on working on natural language processing tools for African languages, and their values are very much kind of in line with the kinds of values I'm thinking about for DARE. And they grew it super slowly, you know, and I think now they have a foundation. I don't think they have any full-time people. Before the show, I was, I was talking to you about the, this article, this Wired article I had read about the Maori who created speech-related technology to benefit their community. So they had this competition uh, using um, their local radio t- for people to send in kind of annotated speech for like speech to text and other kinds of speech related to, you know, language related technology. And they had like hundreds of hours of data, right? And 
then all of a sudden, this company, I think was called Lionbridge or something, this American company, wanted to license their data. And they said no, and they published their reasoning. And they said, we think this is the last frontier for colonization. They beat the language out of our grandparents, literally were not allowed to speak this language, and they were beat up for speaking it. And why is this company interested in like buying stuff for uh, now? It's not, it's obviously not because they want to benefit this community. So they're like, we want to make sure that whatever we do with this data is something that benefits us. So those are the kinds of models I'm looking at. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Like, I like that, how they're doing data stewardship. And Masakani, I like their uh, approach for grassroots organizing. Mihente, right, is another grassroots organizing. They're doing such great work. I just read their report on, um, for instance, border technology. Okay. And they're educating people about what are the different companies involved in this like digital border, digital border walls? How should we organize? They drove Palantir out of Palo Alto, right? And they had this no tech for ice campaign. So so I'm looking at them too and, and how they're, they've been able to be so successful with their grassroots organizing. So I'm looking at different kind of different kind of models to see what, what it is that I like about each of these models mm-hmm. and what makes sense for DARE. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned as we were chatting before getting started was this realization that you had that you can't reduce fairness to a mathematical problem. Like in... I think you saw that experience that I, I see a ton of that. Elaborate on that a bit and kind of your journey to realizing that and where you see it, how it occurs for you out in the industry. <laughs> like my sisters have been saying, Dr. Zafia Noble has been saying this forever. Dr. Ruha Benjamin has been saying this forever. Simone Brown, like the people not trained as engineers and computer scientists have been saying this for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I was um, reading Philip Agre's, it was the most depressing thing in the 90s. He wrote, there was even actually a Washington Post article about him. He was an AI and then kind of became much more of a critic of it. He was a, a became a, a professor and he was like talking about a number of issues that, for instance, like people are going to share their data much more freely for various applications, right? This is way before social media and stuff. And he was like, it's not going to be so much of a big brother kind of thing, but people are just going to like share it without knowing, without thinking carefully. He talked about face recognition. (laughs) And so I was reading this like lessons from trying to reform AI or something like that. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) In the 90s. What year was this? In the 90s? Like 95. I don't remember when. I mean, but it was like lessons from trying to reform AI. talks about how the field is not reflexive, how it's arrogant. You can't get people to think about disciplinary norms and whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, like it's true. Right. And that's what it is. It's that when the field feels like it's better than other fields, has a lot of power and money thrown at it. At this point, you have money from the government, money from industry, money from everywhere. You don't have to think about what anybody else says, even though these people have been saying this stuff forever. And so my own experience showed me, of course, you know, we can talk all we want about, we want to reduce fairness to mathematical equations because first there's, again, it takes me back to that incentive structure. 
when you think about how you ascend in the academic world in computer science or engineering in general, there is this hierarchy of knowledge. I gave a whole talk about the hierarchy of knowledge, right? Certain kinds of knowledge and contributions are valued. So if you spend five years working on data-related stuff, first of all, in these conferences, if you have a data track, it's already inferior. Oh, it's just a data set paper or whatever. You know, where's the engineer? You know, that's how they talk. Mm -hmm. And actually, Kiri Wagstaff gave at ICML 2012 called Machine Learning That Matters, which was basically about this kind of stuff and how what conferences are valuing versus not. Interesting. So that, to me, makes it such that you want to reduce everything to the algorithm, to the math, to the whatever. You want to not look at it as a socio-technical problem, as many people in SDS have said. And when you do that, like the paper, there's a paper called Fairness and Abstraction. They do a really good job of giving examples of what kind of issues might arise when you do that, right? You're just like looking at the system in isolation, not thinking about it as part of a larger system, which is like, how is it being used? What domain is it being used in? Who is using it against whom, et cetera? Then your analysis becomes very different and much more complex. But you're not incentivized to do that. You're not going to ascend. The people who get it, want to give you tenure are going to be like, oh, whatever, that's just data or that's just that's just fluffy, whatever. You know, that's <laughs> I'm telling you yeah. how they talk. And so, so because of that, you're incentivized to be like, oh, what does fairness mean? I have no idea what fairness means, right? And, you know, Mimi Onoha, I, no, actually it was Sita Pena, I think, who said she came to FACT and she gave a talk about some of her observations there at a, some other workshop. And she said, what does it mean to make systems fair that are punitive, that their job is to just be punitive, right? So for instance, when we, people talk about risk assessment, they jump to, you know, using the compact data set and then, you know, right. Christian Lam and others like have written about like all the issues with that data set and why people shouldn't just jump to use it. And then they say, okay, like, we looked at that data set and we have this new algorithm and it makes this other metric higher by X percent, Right. What does exactly mean? What does that mean in reality, right? Like what you're doing is you're still locking people up and you're trying to figure out what does fair mean in this case? Like you're locking this other person up the same amount. So a lot of people don't, you know, abolitionists don't even think that whole system should exist, right? So when you're not looking at the entire system and you're just focusing on this math, even it's unclear, like if that's even something that will help or not. And many times it can be very harmful. I've seen this in the face recognition discussion. Yeah. After Joy and I wrote the paper, uh, like Gender Shades, a lot of people are like, oh, okay, Microsoft came out with an announcement saying now that like they've changed their training data, you know, data, and now it's much better. Now it's all accurate. It doesn't have for darker skinned women, the error rates are not as high. But then when you look at all of the scholarship from especially trans and non-binary scholars, they talk about how automatic gender recognition should not even exist. It shouldn't even be a thing. Mm -hmm. So why are you jumping to making it quote unquote fair, right? That's because you're not incentivized to look at the whole system. And then even if you want to do the right thing, even if you want to do the right thing, like I, I tried to do at Google, you're going to get fired then what, what does that mean, right? Like, why are we writing papers about what to do if everybody's going to get fired if they try to do the right thing? So that's what I mean. You just cannot reduce it to this mathematical thing, uh, but you, you keep on doing it in our field. People keep on doing it because that's what they're incentivized to do and that's what they're rewarded for. I think what I love so much about talking to you is that you have this very clear view of all of the challenges 
the systematic challenges that are kind of inherent and baked into all of these systems that, you know, we struggle against and you don't get jaded. You just, oh, let me try something else. Let me try something else. I'll try something else. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I think sometimes it's because I don't really think about the other option I think is way too depressing is what I think, right? The other option Mm -hmm. of like, being like, I guess this is too big of a problem. We can't do anything. It's too depressing, right? And then sometimes, like when I started Dare, now I think about, oh my God, I was doing this visualization of the plots of like how much money you have, your burn rate, when you're there's a red line, <laughs> when you run out of money. <laughs> and, and I made a mistake and that red line was like, literally like this October. And I just, uh-huh. my heart was just like, oh, <gasps> And I knew I made a mistake, but I'm like, oh my God, I'm doing something right now where this could be the scenario. And it's not just my job. It's like all of these people's jobs that are on the line. So when I think about those things, I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? But (laughs) if I don't really, (laughs) if I don't really, then we have to be, and and I love this quote by Mariam Kaba, and I heard it from Ruha Benjamin saying it, that hope is a discipline. We have to. Yeah, what's the alternative? And it's not like a lot of times I think we think that things are so far away, they're not going to touch us. But we're seeing that that is not true, right? With the pandemic, with the wildfires in California, with all of the ways in which we're all connected in the world. Like if you want a just even a better a better world for ourselves, I'm not even thinking about the next generation who should sue the hell out of all of the prior generations for leaving them like a world with the climate catastrophe. Even if we want a different alternative, I think we should work for it. And for me, it makes me feel better to do that, right? To feel like at least, you know, I'm trying this other thing, this other alternative. Otherwise, it's just too depressing. I don't know how to not do that. Yeah. So the initial funding for... Dare came through MacArthur. Have you identified funding sources beyond that or how that all is going to work? Yeah, that's the big question that I'm, I'm working on right now. So the initial funding came from MacArthur and Ford um, and also the Kapoor Center mm-hmm. gave us a gift and um, Rockefeller Foundation and Open Society Foundation. So it's all these okay. foundations right now. And so now we're applying for project-based funding for grants, like based on specific projects that we're working on. And just like other people, if there's an NSF grant, we'll look into that and and see if we can apply. But I am extremely worried about having a whole institute that is only based on grants. So one Mm -hmm. of the things I'm doing right now is trying to figure out how do we have our own revenue stream and what does that look like? I'm really hoping to have some things that we can experiment with in the next few months, because, you know, we have a bunch of people with expertise and I Mm -hmm. I think we can provide that expertise in in different ways that like are valuable to people and that help us kind of generate revenue for our Institute in a way that gives us a little bit more freedom and independence and flexibility. Right. Imagine right now I say something wrong that one of the funders doesn't like, they mm-hmm. all know each other, and then everybody can just be like, sorry, bye. Like, you know, that can happen. And it's really interesting, you know, the nonprofit world. I mean, it is because of wealth inequality that this world even exists. It's actually really sad. And it's all the people I ran away from, like Eric Schmidt, Chan Zuckerberg, Bezos, and these are all the people who have these large foundations that want to fund tech-related stuff. 
so that's kind of what I'm thinking about right now. Like we're identifying different funding sources, thinking about how to diversify our funding sources, a revenue, what would our old revenue stream look like? And once I figure, especially the revenue stream part, and we have a few things to experiment with, I'll be much happier. <laughs> I'll feel much better about it. Nice, nice. Now, how far along are you? Are, are there folks that are DARE affiliated that have research projects that are spun up and things that you can talk to? We have Alex Hanna as a director of research, Dylan Baker, who used to be under me at Google too, as a researcher slash engineer. We have, uh, I think, two research fellows, Mila and Resa Jump. Mila just joined like this week. And one person who's uh, probably going to join us full time um, in the next month or so. And yeah, so we have, for instance, one of the projects that I had been working on, we've been working on with Rasaja is this project to analyze spatial apartheid, the impacts of spatial apartheid using satellite images and computer vision techniques. And that's a project where, again, all the issues I talked about appear like it takes you a long, long time to the innovation is on figuring out the data, right? Like. Uh, how to get the data and how to process it, how to annotate it. And what does that mean, spatial apartheid? Oh, spatial apartheid is basically like segregation, but it was mandated in 1950 by the Group Areas Act uh, in South Africa. Like it's a feature of apartheid. So people of European descent could live in certain areas and and everybody else had to live in, in, you know, other areas like townships. And the budget allocation was a lot lower for townships, of course. And so the question is, supposedly apartheid has ended legally, right? But when you look at these aerial images, it's so clear, like the delineation is so clear And so the question is, can we analyze the evolution of these neighborhoods and how things are changing? Because we know, right, it passes the smell test in that you can look at these things visually and and do an analysis. We're not just trying to do magic, right? So the question is, how can we use computer vision techniques to do that? So Rasaja, when speaking of exploitation versus not, et cetera, Rasaja is someone who grew up in a township. I mean, so this is a very personal project for her. So it's like mm-hmm. she's investigating her own <laughs> like stuff that's related to her. It's not like yeah. this, what people say, parachute science, right? So that's one of the projects we're working on. We just had a paper on at Neuritz. We're working on releasing the data. That's one of the things I like about being at DARE because... We didn't just stop, publish the paper and like really quickly release the data and we're done. We're like, okay, how do we release the data? How do we create visualizations? How do we allow people to interact with the data? What art, what follow-up work are, we're writing an article for Africa as a country. I don't know if you know that outlet. It's one of my favorite outlets about the work. And one of the things we want to say is that actually the South African government has to label townships if they want to analyze the impacts of spatial apartheid. What they do is they, in the, in the census, they lump it with suburbs as formal residential areas. But that doesn't allow you, because townships were created as because of apartheid, that doesn't allow you to. And this is interesting. It's it's part of a larger kind of issue. Mimi Onuha was talking about how some of her work, I think it's called Data Voids or something like that, talks about how, for instance, Google Maps didn't have favelas in Brazil, Mm -hmm. right? That's a huge, huge, huge community of people. So mm-hmm. it's part of this larger thing about whose data is visible anyhow. But yeah, like, but that's an example of a project that we're working on. And, and there's a, a few others too. Okay. Awesome. Well, how can the community support what you're doing? 
follow us a dare. We're gonna, you know, on Twitter, I think we're gonna also have more stuff on our website, just about more stuff we're working on. And you can donate to dare if you're interested, we're gonna have uh, fellowships uh, for people that we're, we're, you know, we have to think through how to do these fellowships too. And yeah, I think that's it. And advocate for more funding for these kinds of independent research institutes. I don't want to have to cater to like a billionaire to, to, to get funding for our institute. I'd rather apply for a grant that comes from public taxpayers and be accountable to that. Mm-hmm. So that's another way I think in which people can advocate for these things. And are you still hiring? Are you bringing on additional researchers? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of requests for hiring. And so we have to figure out, like I said, we have to first build the initial foundational team. And so before I we open it up for like applications that will flood, like, but we've had like hundreds of um, people asking about internships and volunteer and full-time jobs. So after we set up the initial team, then we're going to be thinking very carefully about what kind of internship fellowship opportunities we'll have what kind of other full-time opportunities we'll have. I mean, that, that's the, the thing about having a small research institute and having to think about funding sources is I can't grow it really fast, right? Yeah. I can't like, so that's the sad part. And uh, the thing about volunteer opportunities that I'm thinking about very carefully is who does that prioritize, right? A lot of people can't do volunteer stuff because they have right. to work. So I think I feel strongly about people being compensated for their work. Very cool. Well, Timnit, It has been wonderful, as always, reconnecting with you and learning a little bit about D.A.R.E. and what you're building there. Thank you for having me. It's it's a lot of fun to (laughs) to come back periodically (laughs) and kind of reminisce on like how much stuff has changed, you know? Yeah, we'll have to be sure to schedule the next one. Not not quite as far out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much, Timnit. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.